0: A History of Modern Britain, by Andrew Marr, read by Toby Longworth Prologue The play starts on the afternoon of the 28th of May, 1940, at a meeting of the War Cabinet in the Prime Minister's office in the old House of Commons. There are only a few players. There is Winston Churchill, who has become the nation's leader only 18 days earlier. He is seen by most of the establishment and many conservatives as a rather ridiculous, drunken and dodgy man, with a penchant for wild speeches and silly hats. Behind their gloved hands they call him the rogue elephant, even the gangster. Among those lukewarm about him becoming the king's first minister less than three weeks before had been the king. In labour circles he was widely regarded as an enemy of the working class, the pink-faced toff who, years ago, had ordered in the army against strikers. Now, Churchill has just ordered British troops at Calais to fight without hope of evacuation, to try to protect the 200,000 left on the beaches at Dunkirk, who might be saved. He regarded it as a stand-and-die order, which he said left him physically sick. He had also been trying to barter with the Americans for desperately needed destroyers. So far, there had been no help. With thousands of British troops making it back across the channel every hour, there was still some hope of rescuing the bulk of the army. But German invasion loomed, and without heavy weapons, that seemed a hopeless prospect. Churchill had just been asked to approve plans for the evacuation of the government and the royal family, as well as the Bank of England's gold, to Canada. Like the King and Queen, he refused to contemplate this. Around the table with him were two men ever afterwards associated with appeasement. There was the former Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, whose peace-in-our-time negotiations in Germany with Hitler had made him a national hero, until very quickly Hitler turned him into a national fool. He was dying. There was the Conservative Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, who on earlier visits to Germany had found Hitler most sincere, and Goering frankly attractive a composite character like a great schoolboy, film star, great landowner, party manager, head gamekeeper at Chatsworth. Much favoured by the court, a lanky, wry, religious and reactionary man, Halifax had been expected to become Prime Minister himself. But in the Lords, he was the wrong kind of Tory for these dark days, and would soon be packed off to be Ambassador in Washington. In this government of national unity, along with the Liberal leader Archibald Sinclair, Were two Labour men. Clement Attlee had become leader of his party almost by accident and was little known in the country. Terse, patriotic, rather colourless, the idea that he would one day be remembered as a great Prime Minister would in 1940 have seemed outlandish. Then there was Arthur Greenwood, a former teacher who had stood in for Attlee during his recent illness. Greenwood is little remembered today. He was a much loved Labour figure before the war, but proved to be a poor minister. In his lifelong fight with the bottle, the bottle won every round. But many second-rate people find themselves called to a moment when history turns, and this was Arthur Greenwood's day. In front of the war cabinet was a simple question. After the devastating success of Hitler's armies in slicing through Belgium, the Netherlands, and France, was it time to try to cut a deal? Halifax and Chamberlain were both in favour, The Italian dictator, Mussolini, had been touted as a go-between, and various bribes for his good offices had been discussed. The Italians might take Gibraltar, Malta, Suez, Kenya, and Uganda as part of their payment to stop the invasion of the British Isles. The terms might be these. Britain would accept Hitler as overlord of Europe, but would be allowed to keep her fleet and the rest of her empire, including India. Churchill had not yet rejected any deal, on any terms, but he was acutely aware that if talk of talks leaked out, the effect on national morale would be devastating. Churchill also believed that any terms offered by Berlin would include handing over the Royal Navy and the creation of a pro-Nazi puppet government in London. Half American himself, he believed that in the end the United States would come into the fight even if Britain was invaded. Surrounded by dim hopes, fears and question marks, this was make-your-mind-up time. Had the gathering been only of conservative politicians, Winston would have been outvoted. Attlee and Greenwood, however, were solid for fighting on and for refusing to negotiate or surrender. So, by a squeak, Churchill had his majority. Fortified by this, his mood revived, and he quickly summoned the full cabinet, where in true Churchillian English he told them, I am convinced— that every man of you would rise up and tear me down from my place if I were for one moment to contemplate parley or surrender. If this long island history of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each one of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. Or that at least is how he recorded it later. Ministers jumped up, shouting approval, and thumped the old man on the back. Later he said he would have been dragged from office if he had tried to surrender. Every minister was ready, with his family, to be killed quite soon. As we have seen, this was an exaggeration. Quite a few British politicians would have done a deal. Washington would have been privately told by its London ambassador that the British would surrender. Looking back, such a thing may seem impossible, unthinkable. But it was quite possible, and it was seriously discussed. This was the moment when Britain was on the edge, and her modern story begins. From that decision, on that day, everything follows. First, there was the war, from the Battle of Britain, through Pearl Harbor, to the final defeat of Germany and Japan. So, second, the world was differently shaped. The end of the British Empire, once the world's greatest, and the rise of the United States as ruler of the free world occurred for complicated reasons but they can be plausibly traced back to what Winston, Clem and Arthur agreed was the right thing to do on that difficult day in May. That decision made contemporary Britain with her weaknesses and strengths, which are the subject of this book. Many unexpected and surprising things followed. Neither Churchill nor Attlee got the Britain they wanted. Instead, unwittingly, they made us. The Second World War was such a shattering, overwhelming experience for Britain that it is tempting to isolate the country we became afterwards from the pre-war Britain, as if a huge blade fell across the national story. In obvious ways this is true. The war changed Britain physically and industrially, destroying city centres. It ultimately changed who lived here by encouraging both immigration and emigration. It changed Britain's political climate and our attitude to government. It even changed, through a subsequent jump in the birth rate, relations between the generations. Yet in other ways, post-war Britain was simply a continuation of the Britain of the thirties. When it was all over, and before Churchill was voted out of power, the Parliament of 1945 was the same one elected in 1935, a commons frozen from another time. Deference and respect for the royal family, belief in the superiority of the white man, a complacent assumption that British manufacturing was still best, all that survived, seemingly unaltered through the years of danger. Britain still believed herself to be in her imperial heyday, mistress of the seas. Though we think of it as essentially Victorian, the British Empire, declaring itself the first world state, had continued to grow right up until the mid-thirties. At the beginning of the Second World War, there were some two hundred colonies, dominions and possessions connected to London, covering more than 11 million square miles. The empire embraced Pacific tribesmen and Eskimos, ancient African kingdoms and the rubble of the great Mughal Empire, Australian farmers and the gold miners of South Africa. It ran from the Scottish Highlands to the Antarctic, from the French-speaking villages of Quebec to the mosques of the Middle East. For a comparatively small nation of fewer than 50 million people to have acquired all this might seem a global absurdity, a large joke in the history of humankind. Relatively few of those square miles helped the British economy thrive, yet the empire was considered the essence of British power, a global financial and trading system independent of the rising might of the United States. The empire on which the sun never sets was not poetic, but factual. Imperial feeling still suffused the Britain of the forties and fifties, Schools displayed the famous red-splattered maps and taught the history of Clive's battles in India and the achievements of missionaries in Africa. Children's encyclopedias brimmed with information about the calico industries of the subcontinent or those useful rubber trees in Malaya. Middle-class bookshelves groaned with Kipling, Somerset Maugham, Henty and T.E. Lawrence. The empire was everywhere, inside the home and out, in street names and statues, to the Indian knickknacks and elephant-foot umbrella stands, Bombay gin and imperial leather soap, the rhododendron bushes from the Himalayas, words like tiffin and bungalows, and the eating of kedgeri for breakfast by all those retired Indian civil servants and administrators in the home counties. There were the names of the major companies, Imperial Chemical Industries, Home and Colonial Stores, British Imperial Airways, the Imperial Rubber Company, empire day was celebrated until 1958 more seriously there was continuing large-scale emigration from the british isles to africa canada australia and new zealand until the 60s one in five emigrants were heading from the uk to the old crown commonwealth countries and more than a million britons went to australia alone during 1946 to 1972 on wet days back home there were the endless pathé and movie-tone newsreels of royal visits to New Zealand, or some dependent territory. Twenty years earlier, the Royal Navy, like the British Empire, had seemed at its zenith a world-dominating power. By the end of the First World War, it had no fewer than 61 battleships, more than the American and French fleets put together, plus 120 cruisers and 466 destroyers. Without this awesome force, and the scores of naval bases and coaling stations all controlled by the superbly organized admiralty in London, the empire would have been impossible to defend. The navy was for the British what the roads and legions had been for the Romans, the thin, steely web holding together many different lands and people. By the twentieth century, with a quarter of the world under British rule, no country had ever claimed power over so many people and so much land. It had been made possible by a centuries-old British love affair with salt water, and by the Victorian enthusiasms for steam power and the appliance of science. In the twentieth century, these traits, which had made Britain great, were in decline. Even so, the navy continued to enthrall the British in the first half of that century in ways we now struggle to remember. Sea shanties on musical stages, the books of Marriott and Forrester for boys, the great spithead reviews, the dreadnoughts on cigarette cards, the blue and gold uniforms at court. Drake and Raleigh, Cook and Nelson were the subjects of 10,000 history lessons in almost every school in the country. To be British was to thrill at the sight of a white ensign. Many post-war trends had started long before the war, and to understand post-war Britain, we must take a bird's-eye view of an earlier, only half-familiar country. One way to do this is to travel with some of the talented writers who set out to discover their own nation between the wars. Part of the aftershock of the First World War, which had made people look again at just what they had been fighting for, it was a great time for such journeys of reportage. Not since Boswell and Johnson had heaved themselves onto ponies and into jolting carriages to visit Scotland in the eighteenth century, and the great radical newspaper man William Cobbett had set jogging off on his rural rides through the depressed countryside of England in the 1820s had journeys round Britain been so popular. The twenties and thirties were a golden age of road travel. While most roads had been like thin twists of twine following ancient routes, bumpy, frayed and narrow, now there were new trunk roads with bright roadhouses and restaurants awaiting the traveller. Rural roads, empty by modern standards and almost unpoliced, made car travel for those who could afford it a moderately dangerous delight. For those who could not, the boom in motor coaches, or buses as we would call them, and in the open-top charabangs made rural and coastal Britain available as it had never been before. Some of the travellers, such as H. V. Morton, who went in search of England in a bull-nosed Morris car in 1927, were looking for a lost green land. He was a little late. The real Britain was heavily industrialized and urban by then, and had been for nearly a century. Morton knew this perfectly well, and defended himself by claiming that the village and the English countryside are the germs of all we are and all we have become. In this, he stands for an ancient tradition of English writing, running back through Thomas Hardy, Kipling, and Chesterton, right the way to the poets of Jacobean times. The real England is green, remote, local, wild, ancient, and with a wisdom of her own. Perhaps, as well as being a little late, he was just in time, for this was before the Urbanites had moved in and finally finished off the traditions that reached back to the Middle Ages. His tour matters because it stands for an idea of Britain which keeps its hold on many people well into the post-war period. His book was hugely popular, capturing post-industrial rural Britain before our current economy of supermarkets and super-roads finally killed it off during the seventies and eighties. Looking for quaintness, Morton finds it everywhere, from old gallows left on remote hills, to ladies taking tea in ancient church premises. He finds the furry, or floral dancers of Helston in Cornwall, jigging in their top hats, flint chippers in Norfolk, the last almshouse in England, and even the last bowl-turner making wooden bowls with Anglo-Saxon technology. There are ghosts, cobbles, eaves, lanes, Roman ruins, ancient pubs serving mahogany-coloured beer, and in general more quirk than any normal person could consume at one sitting. Birmingham, where Morton grew up and worked successfully as a journalist, is dismissed without a visit as that monster, and Manchester is only distantly glimpsed as an ominous grey haze in the sky. On the rare occasions that Morton is roused to genuine anger, it is, like Cobbett, on behalf of the declining and disregarded farming community. Green England's grip on the national imagination should not be underestimated. Comic novels by P. G. Woodhouse and brain-teasing crime novels by Agatha Christie were set in its timeless villages, peopled by ancient families, vicars, and well-educated old maids whose lovers had died in the trenches. The cartoons of punch portrayed England's cricket greens, church halls, peasant crowded lanes and stables, interrupted by the modern world through charabang tours, but still somehow essential. At the start of the war, the Ministry of Labour sent a group of artists, mainly conscientious objectors, off round the country to draw and paint the barns, parish churches and country houses of old England before the Nazi bombers and house builders could destroy them. The scenes chosen looked like a visual version of Morden's journey. Yet British agriculture, and therefore the British countryside, an early casualty of the global economy, had been in a long slump, which lasted from the 1870s until 1940, with only the interruption of the Great War to lift prices. The opening up of the great prairies of North America, the easier transportation of grain and meat with steamships, refrigeration and railways, and even the use of barbed wire to extend the farms of Canada and New Zealand, all badly hurt home producers. From the middle years of Queen Victoria to the beginning of Hitler's war, two-fifths of arable land had gone out of use, and millions of farm workers left the countryside for ever, a trend mildly ameliorated in the mid-thirties by the arrival of tariffs and labour-saving technology. Much of the upland areas had been abandoned to thistles and weeds and were only returned to productive use, along with abandoned arable land, in the extraordinary circumstances of the Atlantic blockade. Some seven percent of the great country houses were demolished between the wars. Many more were converted into hotels, hostels, asylums and schools. The reality was far removed from the nostalgic, muzzy haze through which Morton blissfully pootled, but the haze was what Whitehall thought worth recording when the nation's future was threatened by Germany. A few years later another prolific, successful literary journalist and writer set out on a tour. John Boynton Priestley was brought up in Bradford and moved south. A large, intensely patriotic, lugubrious-looking pipe-smoking man Priestley complained that his best-selling novels made people think of him as a bovine, hearty sort of ass, producing watery imitations of Dickens. Sneered at and disregarded by university academics and posher writers, Priestley's book about England had a great influence on how people understood their own country. He was loquaciously political, and when he set out on his English journey in 1933, almost a quarter of the British workforce was unemployed. In some areas, nearly everyone was unemployed. Priestley wanted to rub the nose of southern middle-class Britain in the reality of the other nation. Rattling around in buses and trams, the heart of his journey was in places like Wolverhampton, St Helens, Bolton, Liverpool, Gateshead, Jarrow and Shotton, where he searched out slums and blighted shipyards, grim factories and desperate mining villages. He found wastelands, industrial decline so bad that it made him question whether the whole nineteenth-century industrial revolution had been worth it. No expert in industry, Priestley had a sharp eye. He describes the Blackburn Technical College, full of industrious, smiling young men from the East, most anxious to learn all that Lancashire could tell them about the processes of calico manufacture. They missed nothing, says Priestley, but smiled at their instructors and then disappeared into the blue. A little later, for we live in a wonderfully interdependent world, there also disappeared into the blue a good deal of Lancashire's trade with the East. Most of those students came from Japan. In the potteries of Staffordshire's black country, Priestley found craftsmen repeating designs which had been fashionable in Victorian times, and still more astonishingly, working on treadles and lathes introduced by Josiah Wedgwood in 1763. Each town in Britain looked different, Smelt different and were full of different words, shapes, noises, because they did different things. Leicester was boots and socks and typewriters. Nottingham was lace, its female workers were also famous for their lack of sexual puritanism. Bradford was wool and strongly influenced by German Jews. Coventry was cars, Sheffield, cutlery, Dundee, Dute, and so on. in nineteen thirty three there was a strong variation, a texture to the nation, that the decline of industry, together with the growth of consumerism and broadcasting, would soon wash away. Priestley understood this. Eventually, globalisation and capital's search for cheaper labour, which Priestley had spotted, would wipe out the Britain he knew. Priestley inspired other writers, notably George Orwell, who famously took the road to Wigan Pier, It Does Not Exist, on foot three years later, as well as photographers and early documentary filmmakers who followed him deep into wrecked Britain. The grim condition of old industrial Britain was only tentatively addressed before the war. The coal mining industry, still key to Britain's economy, was a mass of independent, underinvested companies, using technology which was hilariously old-fashioned by American or German standards. Britain's miners worked with picks, wearing only trousers and stifling heat and near darkness, for low wages and without any kind of job security. Back in the thirties there seemed neither possibility nor prospect of any real change. This was just how things were. Yet evidence of catastrophic decline was piling up. Once investment and innovation had been at the heart of British heavy industry. No longer. British ships Two-thirds of the vessels afloat before the First World War were riveted by hand, outdoors, by a hyper-unionised and strike-prone workforce, in virtually the same way as they'd been put together in Edwardian times to take on the Kaiser. While other countries had changed, Britain had not. Protection and cheap money, then rearmament, helped in the short term. But the industrial problems of Seventies Britain, from Japanese competition to underinvestment, were primed well before the Germans invaded Poland. As Priestley saw films, to his despair replacing music halls, he predicted a country which would seem much the same wherever you are. Once inside a cinema, he pointed out, you could be anywhere from Iowa City to Preston. But it wasn't just the films. Young people were experimenting with cocktails in the new American bars springing up across England. Old English songs were being pushed out by the American blues. This is the England of arterial and bypass roads, of filling stations, of giant cinemas and dance halls and cafes, bungalows with tiny garages, cocktail bars, Woolworths, motor coaches, wireless. It is comparatively classless with its cheap and uniform chain stores and its new industries, the electronics, synthetic fibres, light engineering and aircraft factories spreading around London and through the Midlands. Slough, a byword for the new suburban, light industrial and rather monotonous country taking shape, provoked one of Betjeman's angriest poems. Come friendly bombs and fall on Slough. It isn't fit for humans now. What had he against it? Those air-conditioned bright canteens, tinned fruit, tinned meat, tinned milk, tinned beans, tinned minds, tinned breath. Benjamin was a great snob and nostalgist, but even J.B. Priestley, the self-described democrat and socialist, found something a bit too cheap about the New Britain. Too much of it is simply a trumpery imitation. There is about it a rather depressing monotony. Too much of this life is being stamped on from outside. This new England is lacking in character, in zest, gusto, flavour, bite, drive, originality. Priestley calls it a third England, and this global culture England is far nearer the country that survives today. Many of the same trends were obvious in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, but less so since these did not have the fast-growing new industries of southern England, and were even more buried in the dirt and stagnation of Victorian industrialism. South Wales, with her archaic coal-fields and steel industry, was as badly heard by the mid-war slump as anywhere in the United Kingdom, and considerably more militant than most of England. Scotland's decline was equally obvious, from the shipyards of the Clyde to the sudden silence in Dundee's mills. The Scottish poet Edwin Muir bitterly describes the small industrial town of Cathcart, now effectively part of Glasgow, in his Scottish journey. He found a debased landscape in which every growing thing seemed to be poisoned and stunted, a landscape which involuntarily roused evil thoughts and seemed to be made to be the scene of murders and rapes. He comes across abandoned coal pits where along black slag paths one would see stunted naked boys bathing in the filthy pools, from which rules a smell of various acids and urine. In common with Priestley and Orwell, for Muir, the answer was socialism, and, like Priestley, he notes the Americanizing influence of film and radio on the people of better-off cities, such as Edinburgh. It is a commercial, bus-driven, cinema-educated age, making the immediate environment, this town, that industry, matter less to how people behave. The inhabitants of all our towns, great and small, Scottish and English, are being subjected more and more exclusively to action from a distance, he argues. It is a brilliant insight which well describes what will happen to Britain after the war was over. So, as the travellers of the thirties demonstrate, Britain was changing fast before the war. With a look of fifties Britain, with long ribbons of semi-detached houses spreading out from the old cities, had been set in the age of Stanley Baldwin, American music and films were here long before the G.I.s arrived. There was a lightness and a brightness about Thirties architecture and design that would be picked up, rediscovered, and taken forward after the war into the Fifties. Teenagers may not have existed as a named group in Britain, though the term was already being used in pre-war America, But people in their teens with money to spend on records and clothes and increasing independence from their parents were already a phenomenon in British cities. Chain stores were selling brighter clothes. Television sets were on sale and starting to spread among the London middle classes. The texture of the country was changing. Britain was already becoming a slightly flimsier, less varied nation, a little more American and a little less British. This will be a major part of the story to come. Britain in her imperial heyday was a country which believed in small government, at least at home. Planning was the kind of thing sinister Germans and funny Italians got up to. Despite the pleas from writers, the 30s were not a time when the majority really thought government could make things better. It is easy to feel appalled and bemused by the enthusiasm of so many reasonably intelligent British people for Mussolini and Hitler, but there was more to it than cowardice and racism. There was an impatient yearning for government that actually worked, that ended unemployment, built big new roads, developed modern industries, and, yes, made the trains run on time. Politicians as far apart as the socialist John Strachey, the Tory Churchill, the fascist Oswald Mosley, and the old liberal Lloyd George, all at one time or another, found the dictatorial style something to be at least half admired. The war made such errors so embarrassing they were quickly forgotten. The most fundamental thing the war changed was the political climate. It made democracy fashionable. But it did more. It convinced the British that their government could reshape the nation too. Like most victorious wars, it raised the reputation of the state. If the government could throw an army into Europe and defeat the most well-organized and frightening-looking military machine of modern times, then what else could it do? Was all the waste and lack of planning and general amateurism really the best the British could achieve? In the first of a series of famous BBC radio broadcasts during the war, given on the 5th of June, 1940, after the chaotic near-disaster and last-minute escape of Dunkirk, Priestley called for the amateurism to stop. Nothing, I feel, could be more English, both in its beginning and its end, its folly and its grandeur, we have gone sadly wrong like this before and here and now we must resolve never never to do it again it was time to think differently that resolution to do things differently in future was the biggest domestic change brought by Britain's victory as we shall see it was implemented in the worst possible conditions and had most unexpected effects it didn't however mean that we stopped fighting The world after the war was still a world of war. From Greece and Cyprus to Korea and Malaya, from Kenya to the Falklands, Ireland to Iraq, Britain would always be fighting somewhere. The most serious enemy became world communism, but shooting wars very rarely involved communist armies directly because of the risk of nuclear conflagration. They were more directed at rival forms of nationalism, liberation armies led by African, Asian, or Arab leaders who would be idolised until they turned with depressing regularity into dictators themselves. Many of the colonial wars have almost slipped out of British public memory, though they were bloody enough. Today the country likes to see itself as a peacekeeper, an armed ambulance service, social workers with machine guns, rather than a natural belligerent in the old way. Yet the fighting has gone on even as the armed forces have shriveled in size. Some of the post-war wars caused huge political interest and argument, out of all proportion to their size, both making and destroying reputations. Suez, in which British casualties were just twenty-one, is rightly seen as a post-war turning point, proving how dependent and weak Britain had become. Without the reconquest of the Falkland Islands, the Thatcher era might have lasted just a few years. The Second Iraq War split Britain and ravened Tony Blair's reputation. But Britain's modern military history has been paradoxical. We cut back because the age of warfare is always about to end, yet in practice we keep fighting. We withdraw to barracks, mothball warships, announce a peace dividend, and then jump back out again. In spite of this, and in spite of the abandonment of national service conscription in 1963, Britain has spent disproportionately more on defence than other countries of a similar size and economic strength. Only France has rivalled us. Money which could have gone on education, industrial support, or more modern infrastructure has gone on aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines, and tank regiments in Germany. This has been done to keep Britain as a world player, which she still just is though in almost every war actually fought, and certainly throughout the Cold War, she fought in the larger shadow of the United States. Throughout the post-war age, Britain maintained an inner security state, hidden from public view, a living, unseen structure behind bland brick and stone buildings with a vast electronic ear to the ground at Cheltenham GCHQ. The work of MI5 and MI6 has been of unhealthy fascination to novelists, filmmakers and conspiracy theorists, a continuing metaphor for Britain itself. In the late fifties and early sixties, it was the uncomplicated pride of the 007 confections, followed by the seedy, betrayal-strewn wilderness of John le Carre's novels, and more recently the politically correct, scrubbed young television drama, Spooks. Behind the fiction, the secret state kept her counsel through the Cold War and has only recently let the mask slip a little. MPs, BBC employees, civil servants, judges and political activists were monitored, many having filed reports kept about them. The Prime Ministers, with a monarchical authority inherited from the 17th century, kept decisions and information away from Cabinets and Parliament. These included the original decision to develop atomic weapons, and the incredibly complex and detailed network of bunkers and tunnels prepared for in case of nuclear attack. Inevitably, from the first atom spies and the first Aldermaston marches to the second Iraq war and the role of intelligence in the dodgy dossier, the security state has injected mistrust and worry into public life. Less often discussed is that the post-war wars also maintained a level of patriotism and an interest in things military among many British people, the silent majority, far from the media world. There has been a larger proportion of people connected to the armed forces than would otherwise have happened. National service involved nearly two million men. The Territorial Army, along with the various cadet corps in schools, spread military influence far beyond barracks or dockyards. Something of the atmosphere of the Second World War lasted through decades of blancoed belts, .303 rifles, air displays, and the roar of V-bombers and English electric lightning fighters in the skies above us. The tone, the fabric of life in post-war Britain, has been more affected by war than perhaps we like to admit. History is either a moral argument with lessons for the here and now, or it is merely an accumulation of pointless facts. The story of the British in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War is a morally attractive one with much to learn from, a time of optimism and energy, despite apparently crippling difficulties. Politicians on both sides of the political divide believe that Britain will be important in the new world to be built and a great force for good. Returning soldiers and millions of civilians are determined to make up for lost time, to live happier lives. Patriotism is not narrow. There is such a thing as society, and the common good is not laughed at. Labour is promising a new Jerusalem, and though no one is entirely sure of what that magical city might feel like to live in, it clearly involves a new deal in health, schooling, and housing. In British film there is great energy and ambition. Designers and architects have brought over here plans originally drawn in Europe between the wars to create a brighter, airier and more colourful country. In science and technology, Britain seems to have achieved great things which augur well for peacetime. There is a general and justified pride in victory, not yet much tainted by fear of nuclear confrontation to come. If people are still hungry and ill-housed, they are safe again. If they are grieving, they also have much to look forward to, for the baby boom is at full pitch. There is much in the Britain of the later forties that would surprise or even disgust people now. It was not just the shattered cities or the tight rations that would arch modern eyebrows, but the snobbery and casual racism, even, despite the freshly shocking evidence of the concentration camps, widespread anti-Semitism. Yet overall, this was a country brimming with hope. In history, no quality rubs up as brightly. The great debate about the meaning of our post-war history has been, roughly, an argument between left and right. There are historians of the centre-left, such as Peter Hennessy, who are generally impressed by the country's leaders and get under their skin as they wrestled with dilemmas. Then there are those led by Corelli Barnett, who emphasise failure and missed opportunities, at least until Margaret Thatcher arrives to save the situation in 1979. Everyone else struggles between these force fields. And so, what is my view? That we, grumpy people, perpetually outraged by the stupidity and deceit of our rotten rulers, have, whispered gently, had rather a good sixty years. Britain suffered a crisis in the seventies, a national nervous breakdown, and has recovered since. Britain in the forties and fifties was a damaged and inefficient country which would be overtaken by formerly defeated nations such as France, Germany and Japan. But the longer story, the bigger picture, is that Britain successfully shifted from being one kind of country, an inefficient imperialist manufacturer struggling to maintain her power, to become a wealthier social democracy, and did this without revolution. And shift she did in the greatest scuttle in the world. British governments, Labour and Tory, duly got rid of the empire. This meant the deaths of untold numbers in other continents. Muslims and Hindus caught up in ethnic cleansing, the African victims of massacre and dictatorship, civil war and famine for the Arabs, Cypriots and many nationalities of the Far East. Britain, meanwhile, refocused on her new role as a junior partner in the Cold War, close to Europe, but never quite European speaking the same language as Americans, but never meaning exactly the same. Always we have been a country on the edge. We moved from being on the edge of defeat, to the edge of bankruptcy, to the edge of nuclear annihilation, and the edge of the American Empire, and came out on the other side to find ourselves on the cutting edge of the modern condition, a post-industrial and multi-ethnic island, crowded, inventive and rich. The years before Thatcher were not a steady slide into disaster. Nobody has put this relative British success better than an American historian, George Bernstein, who called his account of post-1945 Britain the myth of decline, and who said of the years before the crisis of the 70s that Britain's performance in providing for the well-being of its people, as measured by employment, a safety net that kept them out of poverty, and improved standards of living, was outstanding. And this Despite ferocious economic conditions, there is a danger of distorting real history with false endings. If one decides that the breakdown of the 70s was the single most important thing to have happened to post war Britain, which shadows everything before and since, then inevitably the story of the 40s, 50s, and 60s becomes darker. Humdrum events dutifully rearrange themselves as ominous warnings. All the things that went right, all the successful lives that were lived during 30 crowded years, the triumphs of style and technology, the better health, the time of low inflation, the money in pockets, the holidays and the businesses that grew and thrived, are subtly surrounded with yes-but brackets. Guess what's coming next? But this is a strange way of thinking. In personal terms, it would be like defining the meaning of a life with all its ups and downs entirely by reference to a single bout of serious illness or marital breakup in middle age. Does this mean we should cheer our leaders? Certainly not. For most of the modern period, politics has served Britain less well than our self-congratulation about parliamentary democracy might suggest. Good people, acting honourably, failed to lead well. We have been run by cliques of right and left who did not understand the direction the country was taking. Hennessy is right. The political class was intelligent and faced terrible choices which are easy to brush aside afterwards when the dangers have passed. But Barnett is also right. We could have had a better country had we had clearer-minded leaders who did not shrink from telling hard truths or from treating the voters like adults. So, Labour did not build a new Jerusalem. So, the Tory cabinets of the fifties and early sixties failed to create the restored great power, the new Elizabethan age they dreamed of. The Wilson and Heath years were supposed to be a time of modernization, a refitted, retooled Britain. They ended with trade unions rampant and the lights flickering out. John Major set out promising to create a country at ease with itself and ended up with a country ill at ease, above all with John Major. Tony Blair's new Labour Britain was never as cool or efficient as he told us it would be, even before the Iraq War. Nor was it whiter than white. Each failure occurred on its own terms. The exceptions were the Labour government of 1945, which developed a welfare state even if it did not achieve the social transformation it wanted, and Margaret Thatcher's first two administrations, which addressed the British crisis head-on. Both set templates for what followed. But even these two counterexamples are not completely clear. Post-war labour ran out of popularity and momentum within a couple of years, while Mrs. Thatcher's vision of a moralized, hard-working nation of savers and strong families was hardly what the partying, divided, loads-of-money, easy-credit, big-hair-80s delivered. What follows is a story of the failure of political elites. Often the famous political names, those faces familiar from a thousand cartoons and newsreels, seem to me like buzzing flywheels with broken teeth, failing to move the huge and complex structures of daily life. If that was all, it would be a depressing tale, but it is not. Opening markets, well-educated and busy people, a relatively uncorrupt and law-abiding national tradition, and an optimistic relish, for the new technologies and experiences offered by 20th century life all make the British experience generally better than political history alone would suggest. In the more recent decades the retreat of faith and ideology and their replacement by consumerism and celebrity may have made us a less dignified lot. Yet modern Britain has made great advances in science, culture and finance which have benefited and will benefit the world. Among the puzzles facing humanity at the beginning of the 21st century are global warming, the mystery of consciousness, and how ageing Western societies adapt to the new migrant cultures they require to keep them functioning. British people have been important in bringing answers, just as they were seminal in the development of the web and in creating modern music and television. We have become a world island in a new way. In the period covered by this book, the dominant experience has been acceleration. We have lived faster. We have seen, heard, communicated, changed and travelled more. We have experienced a material profusion and perhaps a philosophical or religious emptiness that marks us off from earlier times. If, by an act of science or magic, a small platoon of British people from 1945 could be time-travelled sixty or so years into the future, what would they make of us? They would be nudging one another and trying not to laugh. They would be shocked by the different colours of skin. They would be surprised by the crammed and busy roads, the garish shops, the lack of smoke in the air. They would be amazed at how big so many of us are, not just tall, but shamefully fat. They would be impressed by the clean hair, the new-looking clothes and the youthful faces of the new British. But they would feel shock and revulsion at the gross wastefulness, the food flown here from Zambia or Peru, then promptly thrown out of houses and supermarkets uneaten, the mountains of intricately designed and hurriedly discarded music players, television sets and fridges, clothes and furniture, the ugly marks of painted, distorted words on walls, and the litter everywhere of plastic and coloured paper. They would wonder at our lack of church-going, our flagrant openness about sex, our divorce habit alongside our amazingly warm and comfortable houses. They would then discuss it all in voices that might make us in turn laugh at them, insufferably posh or quaintly regional. Yet these alien people were us. They are us. The cropped-haired urchins of the forties are our pensioners now. The impatient, lean young adults of 1947, with their imperial convictions or socialist beliefs, are around us still, in wheelchairs or hidden in care homes. It was their lives and the choices they made which led to here and now. So, although they might stare at us and ask, who are these alien people? We could reply, we are you, what you chose to become. Part 1. Hunger and Pride. Britain, after the war. The Democratic Bombshell. Many of us find our innermost fears or hopes take arms while we sleep, ready to strike at the moment of wakening. Churchill recorded that on the morning of the 26th of July 1945, he woke up with a sharp stab of almost physical pain to find himself sure that he and the Conservatives had just lost the general election. There was a long delay for the votes to be brought back from battlefields around the world, Few people thought the war leader could lose power. Most Labour leaders assumed he would be returned. So did the apparently well-informed city experts, the in-touch trade union bosses, the self-certain press, the diplomatic observers passing back the latest intelligence to Washington and Moscow. Churchill was at the very peak of his personal triumph, outshining the king and royal family when he appeared on the famous balcony to wave. Never in British history has military success been so personally associated with a civilian leader. Not the two great pits, not Disraeli at his peak, not David Lloyd George could rival Churchill's radio age charisma. True, 1945 had been a most unusual election. The parliament it ended had begun in the middle of the thirties, nine years, six months, and twenty days earlier, making it the longest UK parliament ever, a parliament of old men, unused to raw party conflict. Churchill would have liked it to go on longer, at least until Japan was defeated. Never quite a party man, he had a coalition cast of mind. It had been Labour which insisted on the election. Now, no one knew what was coming. The scattered and disrupted nature of the electorate meant accurate polling was impossible. The new electoral roll was inaccurate, too, having been based on ration book records. Among those who found they had no vote because of clerical errors was the Prime Minister himself. For those with ears to hear, there were intimations of what was about to happen. During the war, a high-minded religious socialism had become fashionable at home. As the carnage ground on overseas, an almost utopian determination to build a more Christian country took root. As early as 1940, the great wartime Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, had called for extreme inequalities of wealth to be abolished. Going rather further, his Council of Clergy and Ministers for Common Ownership declared private ownership of industry contrary to divine justice. In the forces, compulsory discussions about Britain after the war had been led by the Army Bureau of Current Affairs, ABCA, organised by a left-leaning educationalist called W.E. Williams. Conservative-minded officers complained about the tone of the pamphlets sent round the army and that Williams had smothered the troops in seditious literature. One general burned 10,000 of the wretched pamphlets in front of his men and warned that they were rank treason. To this day, many conservatives believe that socialist propaganda foisted on the troops was to blame for their defeat in 1945. In fact, the numbers do not add up. The minimum voting age was 21, which cut out many of the more malleable troops, and in any case, there were fewer than two million service votes cast in a total electorate of 33 million. The change was happening among civilians. A strong sense that it was time for a fresh beginning had been reflected in a series of by-election defeats of Tory candidates when vacancies were caused in the Commons by the deaths of sitting members. Twenty-two MPs were killed fighting, all but one of them Conservatives. At Malden in Essex, the left-wing journalist Tom Dryberg had won, standing as an independent. By 1943, candidates for the piously socialist Commonwealth movement, founded by our English traveller J.B. Priestley, and by Sir Richard Ackland, were winning upset victories up and down England. In April of that year, the Battle of Britain pilot John Loveseed won a Cheshire seat. Lieutenant Hugh Lawson won Skipton in the Yorkshire Dales. Most sensationally of all, In April 1945, in Tory Chelmsford, wing commander Ernest Millington, a pre-war pacifist and socialist who had then joined the RAF and turned his attention to bombing Germany, defeated the Conservative candidate. Millington, standing for Commonwealth and supported by local vicars, had fought a remarkably aggressive campaign, whose tone can be summarised by a banner he put up in the middle of the market town which read, This is a fight between Christ and Churchill. By 1945, there was a whiff of Oliver Cromwell in the air. The Labour conference, which kick-started the election campaign one hot afternoon in Blackpool, is still remembered for the youth of the delegates. Dennis Healy was there, in battle dress and beret, fresh from the battlefront in Italy, preaching red-hot socialist revolution. Across Europe, the upper classes were selfish, depraved, dissolute and decadent, he told the cheering hall. Roy Jenkins, who had helped crack the German codes at Bletchley Park, was there too, a slim and dapper soldier. There was even a socialist rear-admiral. Labour's manifesto, well-written and snappily designed, would be distributed to nearly two million people, backed by powerful posters, twelve million leaflets and huge numbers of party volunteers. Its most popular passages could hardly have come as a shock. They relied on the blueprint for a fairer, more planned country, which had been worked out by the coalition government before the war ended. Labour had the support of only a minority of the national press. Apart from the Daily Mirror and its in-house Daily Herald, the big circulation papers were all pro-Tory, and the two upmarket leftish newspapers, the Manchester Guardian and the News Chronicle, both backed the Lost Cause Liberals. Different parts of the country found very different audiences for Labour's meetings. Attlee was rushing about in his little standard car, rapping out around eight speeches of a terse twenty minutes apiece every day. He thought his reception was excellent. In some towns the election seemed quiet. In others, huge and attentive crowds turned up to listen and argue back. In Birmingham, Roy Jenkins recalled... Seas of faces looking up in the twilight, a mixture of exhaustion, hope, some kind of doubt. A sea of tired faces looking up in hope. That's the best phrase I can make of it. Churchill, meanwhile, was fighting one of the bad campaigns of his life. His theme was that Labour was a sinister socialist conspiracy. In a badly misjudged radio broadcast kicking off his campaign, He let his florid wartime language loose and struck entirely the wrong note. No socialist system, he said, could be established without some form of political police, a British Gestapo. Instead, he offered a vision of bucolic good cheer, which would have seemed dated in the aftermath of the Boer War. Let us make sure that the cottage home to which the warrior will return is blessed with modest but solid prosperity well-fenced and guarded against misfortune. Atlee answered him with gentle irony. The Gestapo suggestion was grossly offensive, but the Labour leader disarmingly replied that it was no doubt Churchill's way of demonstrating the gulf between his qualities as a great war leader and those of a mere party leader, and that the attack had probably been devised by the press-baron Lord Beaverbrook. It was, in fact, all Churchill's own work. His wife Clemmie had strongly warned him against it, and his party's chief whip had commented that it is not my idea of how to win an election. A second line of Tory attack was that Attlee was the mere front man for extremists. The Labour chairman Harold Lasky was portrayed by conservative candidates as hell-bent on revolution. Lasky did use wild language and was on the left of the party, though his father campaigned for Churchill and had recently suggested that a public fund be raised to show Churchill the nation's gratitude. The Prime Minister said a better monument for him would be a public park for the children of London on the south bank of the Thames, where they suffered so grimly from the Hun. This was never followed up. Churchill had based himself in Claridge's Hotel in London and used a private train and a cavalcade of cars to make his speeches around the country. Mostly he won an enthusiastic enough reception, though he was dumbfounded to find himself booed by a large section of the crowd in his final rally at Walthamstow. This was not quite the respectful British nation of myth. Despite these warning signs, the brutal rejection of Churchill for Attlee caused amazement around the world. Before the election result was declared, the two men had been together at Potsdam in Germany, negotiating the future of post-war Europe with Joseph Stalin and President Harry Truman. Where would Poland's borders be? How hard should defeated Germany be squeezed? Whose was Greece? Returning to London for the results, Churchill had not even bothered to say goodbye to the Soviet dictator or Washington's new man. He did not properly pack. He would be back. Attlee was by then somewhat more optimistic. He thought it would be close. About that, at least, he was wrong. In 1935, the conservatives had won 585 seats. In 1945, they won just 213 Labour won more votes than the Tories for the first time ever, giving them 393 seats and a majority of 146. When Attlee returned to Potsdam alone without Churchill, Stalin's right-hand man, Molotov, was incredulous. He suspiciously cross-questioned the Labour leader about why he had not known the result in advance. Such democratic sloppiness would not have been tolerated further east. Churchill, brooding at home, found it a terrible personal shock. When Clemmie tried to cheer him up with the thought that it might be a blessing in disguise, he grunted that just at the moment it seemed quite effectively disguised. Yet he quickly spirited a silver lining out from the cloud. The years ahead would be a terrible trial to the British people, Churchill believed. Might not Labour be better left to cope with the disappointments to come? At last, Discovering the generosity of spirit that had gone absent without leave during his election campaigning, the old man rebuked one of his aides. This is democracy. This is what we have been fighting for. What had Labour been fighting for? The party's new MPs arriving in London by train, car and bus were a mixed bunch. Most were inexperienced in the ways of Parliament as they would soon show by giving a raucous rendition of the red flag in the temporary chamber, the historic one having been demolished by the Luftwaffe. There were Fabian intellectuals, wartime rebels, trade unionists and civil servants, such as the podgy, mustachioed Harold Wilson, soldiers and teachers, cautious moderates and, so the Communist Party believed, at least nine secret Communist plants. All of them had stood on a manifesto written by Herbert Morrison and a young idealist called Michael Young, who would go on to found the Consumers Association. It called for the establishment of the Socialist Commonwealth of Great Britain, free, democratic, efficient, progressive, public-spirited. It contained a long list of ideas, but it was as realistic as, in private, Churchill had been about the difficulties ahead. The problems and pressures of the post-war world threaten our security and progress as surely as, though less dramatically than, the Germans threatened them in 1940. We need the spirit of Dunkirk and of the Blitz, sustained over a period of years. In the years ahead, this fighting bulldog tone would quickly grate. Some of the new Labour MPs felt they had been elected to overturn the class basis of the country, others that they simply had a difficult list of domestic reforms to get through. As they introduced themselves to one another for the first time, gossiping and exchanging campaign stories, a sizable minority also believed they had better get rid of the conventional sounding Attlee and elect a proper leader while there was time. Herbert Morrison, a popular minister who had organised London's defence against the Blitz, had warned Attlee that he would stand against him in a party contest. The plot gathered force in the corridors and urinals of Westminster Central Hall. At the same time, Attlee, Morrison, the burly ex-trade union leader Ernie Bevin, and the party secretary met at Transport House, the party headquarters a few hundred yards away. As Morrison nipped out to make a call to another supporter, Bevin leaned across to Attlee and growlingly gave him the best advice of his life. Clem, you go to the palace Street away. Clem did. He took tea with his wife Vi and family at Paddington. Hopped into their little car and was driven to Buckingham Palace, where the King, a staunch Conservative taken aback by the turn of events, duly handed him control of the British Empire. Morrison and the other Labour plotters left half a mile to the east had underestimated Attlee. Many people had. He would go on to become one of the two genuinely nation changing Prime Ministers of modern British history. Hiroshima and Keynes. The Limits of Wit The Labour government of 1945-1950 to is remembered today as among the greatest British administrations ever. Some of the glory is justified. As we will see, it changed the health and welfare structure of the country, nationalised sections of the economy and managed to survive a series of terrible external shocks. But, if its aim was to create a British socialist commonwealth with different values and different people in charge, to make a social revolution – then Labour failed. No significant changes to the British class system came about as a result of the work of the Attlee government, nor was there any loosening of the ties to Washington, ardently desired by many on the left, who thought Labour could deal better with Moscow on the dubious principle that left can speak to left. Labour hoped to keep Britain free and independent, going her own way between the great capitalism on the other side of the Atlantic and the great communism now in possession of half-Europe. Yet under Attlee, Britain became dependent on the United States. She could not match America's overwhelming military power around the world, symbolised by an atomic bomb that Britain had helped create, but was not allowed to share. The weakness of Britain's dying imperium meant her world role would have to shrink dramatically. Attlee understood this much faster than most of his colleagues. Britain had arrived blinking into a new world, Still cloaked in the archaic 19th century grandeur of imperialism. The Americans were busy creating their own commercial empire, moving into markets vacated by defeated or exhausted rivals. The Soviet Union was equally busy extending its political empire, funding local dictators and occasionally lurching towards more dramatic confrontation. These two new empires were very different. America's empire came informally dressed, talking about freedom and equality. Outside its Asian wars and its support for vicious South American regimes, these words did not ring hollow, but those are large geographical exceptions. Moscow, meanwhile, was busy repressing and imprisoning in the name of history and the working class, one eye always on the even more bloodthirsty tyranny of Mao's China, challenging it for third-world leadership. Against these new empires, the moth-eaten pretensions of a mild-mannered king-emperor A few battleships and a modest number of colonial governors in baggy shorts barely seemed relevant. Britain's dilemma from 1945 until today has been easy to state, impossible to resolve. How do you maintain independence and dignity when you are a junior partner, locked into defence systems, intelligence gathering, and treaties with the world's great military giant? At times, Britain has had real influence in Washington, above all in the talks with the Labour government which produced the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and in the first Gulf War, when Margaret Thatcher urged George Bush Sr. not to wobble. At other times her dependence has been embarrassing, in big ways, such as the Suez fiasco, and small ways, such as the American refusal to share intelligence assessments in Iraq, even when the raw intelligence was gathered originally by British agents and passed on. Yet, when one country, the United States, is both leader of a large alliance of other countries and has strong national interests which may conflict with those of her allies, there is bound to be friction. Periodic bouts of anti Americanism inside the Foreign Office and in Whitehall generally have been the result. Anti American feeling has been the establishment's secret vice. In public, successive foreign secretaries and mandarins spoke reassuringly of the British punching above our weight and the vital importance of the Churchill-hallowed special relationship. In practice, this meant sharing intelligence with the Pentagon and CIA, the intertwining of nuclear strategy, large US bases on British soil, the leasing of British bases to America, and a posture towards American presidents that is nearer that of salaried advisor than independent ally. For there was another reason for Britain's new dependency politics. The country was broke. Atlee's government had little time to contemplate all this. The military and economic weaknesses of the country were tested with devilish symmetry just a fortnight after the new government was formed. On the 14th of August, 1945, eight days after the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and five after the attack on Nagasaki, Japan surrendered. A week after that, President Truman reached across and briskly placed his signature on a paper ending the wartime Lend-Lease Agreement with Britain and other countries. Lend-Lease, which dated from 1941, had allowed the US government to lend, sell, lease and give countries fighting Germany and Japan whatever they thought was needed. Britain was by far the largest recipient, getting more than $30 billion of the $50 billion spent. She had become dependent on the huge pipeline of aid, and not only for fighting. About a fifth of people's food needs came from America. When the pipeline was suddenly cut off, and a bill presented for whatever was still being used, it was brutal cold turkey indeed. Truman, acting in strict accordance with American law, stopped Lend-Lease without warning his allies and without, it seems, realising the implications of what he was doing. The effect on Attlee's new government was instant. Britain did not have enough dollars left to feed the country, nor was there any way to earn the money quickly. The shattered economy was exporting only around a fifth of what it had before the war, yet non-military imports were five times higher than in 1938. In the words of one historian, Britain had by now declined into a warrior satellite of the United States, dependent for life on American subsidies and had, by waging total war, destroyed the basis of her economy on which she had flourished for the previous hundred years. Through the war years, America had been open-handed, but Britain, fighting also to prevent a German victory which would have threatened the global influence of the United States, spent proportionately far more of her energy on the common struggle. The official historians of the wartime economy, writing in the dark post-war years, allowed their feelings to show. In a war allegedly governed by the concept of the pooling of resources among allies, the British had taken upon themselves a sacrifice so disproportionate as to jeopardise their economic survival as a nation. In his memoirs, Truman said he had learned the lesson from his signature of the ending of Lend-Lease that I must always know what is in the documents I sign. But the economic crisis which the action caused in Britain, in many ways, served American interests. At the time, with the victory celebrations, a recent memory, and patriotic films pouring from the British cinema industry, pessimism about the future would have seemed outlandish to most people, a kind of moral treason. This, after all, was the Britain of, to quote Labour's 1945 election manifesto, scientists and technicians who have produced radio location, radar, jet propulsion, penicillin, and the Mulberry harbours. The Britain whose empire had mostly survived the Britain occupying swathes of Germany and Italy, the Britain whose leaders sat with those of the new superpowers, apparently shaping the world. The historian Corelli Barnett summarised the situation with brutal clarity. The post-war British people had the psychology of the victor although their material circumstances approximated more to those of a loser. That was a perception gaining ground in Whitehall at the time, where they had the figures. In August 1945, The economist John Maynard Keynes told Attlee that the country is virtually bankrupt and the economic basis for the hopes of the people non-existent. Attlee's cabinet duly sent Keynes, the world's most famous economist, to Washington to get help. What followed was as important in the history of modern Britain as any minor war to be fought in the decades to come. As beggar, Keynes may not have been a good choice he was over-optimistic about his powers of persuasion, indeed startlingly arrogant, a trait not unknown among Bloomsbury intellectuals. He sailed off assuring Atley that he believed he could get a free gift of some six billion dollars from the Americans, a large proportion of what was left in the Federal Reserve. Once in Washington he ran into a stodgy defensive line of conservative bankers, bolstered by public opinion which was sixty percent against giving the British a loan, never mind a gift. Keynes responded by dazzling but also irritating the American negotiators with wit, high-minded arguments, and occasional mockery. One U.S. banker retorted, He is too brilliant to be persuasive with us Americans. How many trust him? How many will accept his sales talk? No one. Up against Keynes, who arrived ill via a troop ship to Canada, was William Clayton, a gangling cotton manufacturer from Texas, and Fred Vinson, a former professional basketball player and lawyer. For four solid months, based in his Washington hotel and supported by the British ambassador, Lord Halifax, Keynes haggled and chiselled. Keynes's biographer said this of their marathon argument. The Kentucky lawyer and the Bloomsbury intellectual were like chalk and cheese. Vincent and Clayton were no match for Keynes in argument, but they always held the whip hand. It was a case of brains pitted against power. End of disc one.